there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer. I'm a senior content manager and this week I'm delighted to be joined at the Marina Bay Sands Singapore by senior staff writer Ed Dixon. Ed, how are you? Good morning, George. Yeah, it, I think it is the morning and I think it is day one of Sports Pro APAC. The uh, the jet lag is, I think I'm knee deep in it, but it's all, it's all part of the fun. It certainly is. Now we're sat in the staff room at Sports Pro APAC and we've just finished the first two sessions of the morning, both looking at the APAC landscape in a bit of detail and also looking at comparing the APAC landscape with the European and the US landscape. How have you found this morning's session so far, Ed? It's been great, yeah. And you and Nick, you kicked things off with a very smooth presentation, a nice shoehorn reference to the cricket as well. I knew you couldn't resist that. I think what for me was really good about it was you kind of demystified the market. I think when people compare the European market to the Asian market, the temptation is to go, yes, Asia's much bigger, bigger catchment rate. You really boiled it down. You focused on specific properties, interest in certain leagues, and also, crucially, how to tap that interest, how to monetize it and things like that. So I thought it was a very informative session. Well, actually, I'm going to start at the end as is my want. The final question that was asked in taking a deep dive into the APAC sports landscape is, is essentially Asia a land of perennial opportunity? So is it time for me to play the long game or pivot and focus elsewhere? What that question highlighted is sometimes a bit of a lazy approach to the APAC region, which is yes, there is a huge untapped potential here. There are 3.6 billion consumers and that rate is only increasing. Um, One stat that I found interesting, albeit because it was from my presentation with Nick, is that uh, six of the 13 biggest consumer markets by 2030 are all going to be from Asia. So it's a big market, undoubtedly, but it's a growing market in particular. It's not about playing the long game and waiting for the Asia region essentially to almost like catch up, right, with the American market or the European market. It's actually about how can you use its unique differences, but its unique opportunities, particularly when it comes to the digital arena, to massively monetize that huge audience base. Yeah, absolutely. And the temptation is, because this is Sports Pro APAC, to kind of apply a sort of a catch-all term to the whole region. You know, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. Every, every market is different. What works in China isn't going to work in the Philippines, for example, necessarily. Yes, there'll be a degree of crossover in certain sports and stuff like that, but it's vastly different. And I think you have to adjust accordingly. It's finding that the methods to do that. That's a really important point. It's very tempting, particularly given the conference is called Sports Pro Pack. And one of the things that Nick and I tried to do is, uh, yes, we're looking at market comparisons between, I think we termed it the East and the West. That's almost unhelpful because treating APAC as a homogenous sporting landscape is just wrong. For instance, we looked at average revenue per user. In Australia, that's $40. In India, that's $2. Same APAC region, vastly different landscapes and vastly different economics that underpin that. One stat that I found particularly interesting from the breaking down the APAC session that highlights that is in China. So China's often seen as 
one of the forefront markets in APAC. But can you have a guess what the annual revenue is from subscription to live football is in China? I'm not even going to go there because I'm just I already sound like an idiot on a podcast anyway. I don't really want to re- double down on that. Thirteen million dollars. Just $13 million for a multiple... I was going to say hundreds. 12.5. So close. <laughs> that's what you need to put your neck out more, Ed. But that's a, a staggering figure, right? Subscription-based revenue from live football. And that primarily comes from the Champions League, he mentioned, and the big five European rights. That's tiny compared to population. So as you mentioned, yes, it's a tough market for foreign rights holders, but doubling down on digital platforms trying to unlock the immense mobile connections and the improved connectivity. I think JB Roy from Asia Sports Tech made the quite funny comparison of you try and use 5G on the metro in Paris, but you try and use, you know, 5G in the Philippines is a different ball game altogether. Yeah, and, mo- and mobile, particularly across APAC, is really cited as a key driver for a lot of different sectors within sport, actually. Esports in particular, China, huge market, that's for various political reasons, has I guess, from a revenue standpoint, been compromised slightly. But mobile is seen, particularly in India as, as well, just using that as another example. I think it's a billion mobile connections. Yeah, well, exactly. But that's, that, that's a key entry point for people in esports because most people may not own a PlayStation or an Xbox. Other consoles are available. But, you know, they've chance they're going to own a mobile. They worry, but not the BBC. <laughs> yeah. the, um, they, you know, they may not own a games console, but they might own a mobile. So... That's seen as a key entry point for specific sectors. But as you say, just having a mobile in your hand isn't enough. There's so much more you need to apply to it, whether it's things like connectivity, accessibility, just even things like your content as well. So it's really drilling down into things like identifying what's going to be important, but also what goes with that to, to make it work. You know, it will be easy to say, oh, we'll whack it on mobile. But sadly, it's not that simple. And that's one of a number of things that we've already seen from the last couple of sessions of what we'll probably be going to be seeing for the next couple of days. And looking at mobile, that actually extended into sports rights. So one very eye-opening example came from Eric Gang from China Sports Media. And he was the one that provided that $13 million figure in subscription revenue. But then he also gave an example of PSG versus Real Madrid, a friendly football game. So, you know, no competitive edge to it, really. Um, that was broadcast on PSG's TikTok. And that raised he estimated revenues of $500,000. So what, a 26th with my terrible maths, a 26th of the overall subscription figure on one friendly game just broadcast via TikTok. That figure was quite funny, actually, because I think it was that was a project run by Mailman who were moderating the session. So it could neither be confirmed nor denied. But as you say, it really does show the potential on the opportunity of a mobile first approach and a digital first approach. Melbourne Victory talked about 100% growth in digital users over the last two years and how really there's a commercial gap there. There's a need to commercialize those channels better, but it's such an important platform with which to bring in users. Well, that segues quite nicely into the next session, actually, with Chatri Sityadong from One Championship. They really big up their engagement numbers, particularly in the OPAC region, their fan base, engagement, hits, views, whatever, but translating that into monetizing that and, and revenue. And hopefully we're going to be able to explore some of that in the next session. So we may well come back and be none the wiser or be, or be more informed. It's one thing having those figures, but it's actually translating that into the bottom line.
given that our CEO is about to moderate that session in about 15 minutes, you're a brave man to say we may be none the wiser. However, joking aside, let's catch up a bit later, shall we, at lunchtime and, and hear what uh, Chatchhead said. Another cricket reference to sort of sign off. I'm sure um, Nick will send, send it down. It's just whether Chatchy opts to play a straight bat or not. So we'll see. Or more on that anon. Ed. I'm stood alongside you in the networking space at SportsPro APAC. The hubbub of conversation continues all around us. And to our left, the World Table Tennis ping pong table is set up where I believe we're at the final, where the winners will take two tickets to next March's Singapore Slam. Sadly, uh, SportsPro staff are ineligible for the prize. Otherwise, I would invite you as my partner having winning the prize. But anyway, let's talk business. So since we caught up this morning, been plenty of sessions on the main stage. I thought we'd start with one championship and their CEO, Chattery. A really interesting conversation, but one that positioned one as the fifth biggest sports property in the world, certainly from viewership metrics. And he went into a pretty deep dive on some of those metrics, particularly online video growth, which I think was up by 135,000 times what it was six or seven years ago. What was your take on that? Yeah, he's always good for a soundbite, actually, which is why we like having him. But he, he, An editorial man's dream. I spoke to him last year, actually, and he cited a Nielsen report that, as you say, mentioned that they're the fifth biggest sports property. And these engagement metrics um, are objectively very healthy, very impressive, particularly for an Asian sports property that's looking to grow in America in the North American market. I think the big question that still remains with one is when's it going to start being profitable? Because yes, it's raised over 500 mil, but its losses are in the hundreds of millions as well. And I think when Nick, Nick Meacham, our CEO, when he, when he asked him that, I mean, Chachu was very bullish, as you'd expect him to be. He expects profitability to be, and again, could be 12 months, could be three years, could be five. I think he's of the opinion that it will come. And when it does come, it will be consistent and regular and will appease investors. He says he's very lucky in the sense that he's able to be in an environment where, yes, there's pressure to make money, but he's in an environment where you've got to speculate to accumulate, really. Challenger sport, growth at all costs. And he believes the key drivers that will help them stick the landing, if you like, is partly their demographic. I think the figure he gave was 90% of their audience is Gen Z and millennials, you know, which he says is the most sought-after audience. And so many leagues competing for that. Other things he touched on as well were mobile consumption, particularly among that audience, is their go-to. He says combat sports is conducive to that platform, whereas if you're a fan of golf, it's actually quite difficult to see the ball. I know that sounds a bit trivial, but you know when you wake up in the morning and your first thing you do is go on your phone and you want instant content, if you can't really see what's going on, you're just going to instantly keep scrolling. That's kind of what I took from it as well. He also, my favourite quote from the session, just to say, was that he referred to himself as the Forrest Gump of sports. I in, did enjoy that. And that he keeps running and good stuff happens. So if, if in doubt, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you to do the impression of Forrest Gump, but I'll, I'll <laughs> refrain in your jet lag state. That was slightly the theme of the day, though, wasn't it? Which is, you know, looking at these growth metrics, particularly, you know, consumption figures, viewing figures, tapping into APAC's immense consumer base, Mm. but underpinned all the time, really, by those monetization challenges that come. And I think one thing that was certainly pretty clear was, yes, one has enjoyed a pretty seismic rise in terms of its viewers and its online engagement, but there still are unanswered questions. And even after the session some significant unanswered questions about the route to profitability. But there's always going to be scrutiny with one. And in a way, that's a testament to where it sits in the wider sporting landscape. If it didn't have a presence, 
in multiple markets if it wasn't pulling in these numbers I wouldn't be under the scrutiny it is so it's I guess kind of a, a blessing and a curse if you like people are expecting results on the bottom line because it's posting these other big numbers so Chachu says they will come and giving his martial arts pedigree I'm not going to argue with him <laughs> yeah there are still questions there but Chachri believes they will be answered exactly when we don't know but we'll make sure to keep it on track but yeah, yeah the, the proof will be plays in the pudding out. absolutely well let's hear a, a clip from Chachri talking about some of that today so since day one I, I wanted to create a global sports property you know, I did, again, I didn't know we we're going to be top five in the world, but I just said I want to create a global sports property with the very, very best world championship martial artists. Because one thing I know, human beings all over the world want to watch the best. So it doesn't matter if it's racing or if it's running or if it's boxing or if it's swimming, whatever it is, people want to watch the best. And I knew the continent of Asia had the very best martial arts, but I also was hunting all over the world. So today our roster is truly 50-50 in terms of Eastern Hemisphere and Western Hemisphere. Uh, a, rep- a great representation of, of the global course, monetization has been very difficult, but populace. one thing that was very fortunate, was, or had been very fortunate, is that investors finally, some of the smartest investors in the world, like Sequoia Capital out of Silicon Valley, uh, Tomasek and GIC out of Singapore, the Sovereign Wealth Funds, the Sovereign Wealth Fund out of QIA, smart money, sports investors from America like Guggenheim and Vulcan invested in a company. And they really believed in, first of all, creating a brand that was truly global and mainstream, of representing the very best, and then a platform that co- creates content engines that can create uh, you know, these, these massive numbers. Um, and then, of course, it just takes time to build a platform. I literally went country by country, and today we're broadcasting 179 countries live every Friday. So we have, we have events every Friday in prime time in Asia. And it's just the beginning, because when I look at Europe, when I look at U.S., it's, it's massive, and our fan base is growing. Like, all these numbers here, we, we see the vertical exponential growth also in Europe, also in North America. So I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity. Now, like I said, I got very, very lucky. I didn't know the scale was going to be this deep, or that it would be this big. But now it's very clear that European broadcasters, American broadcasters are very interested because they want to ride these numbers. And our audience is 90% millennial and Gen Z. So it's the most coveted demographic possible. And in the world of sports, combat sports is definitely the fastest growing segment globally. There's no question about it. If you look at soccer, maybe it's growing 1% a year because it's fully penetrated. Basketball, maybe a few percent a year. American football, down 1%, up 1%. The only properties that have these kind of metrics are like literally UFC and one because the millennials and Gen Z have spoken. They, they, they love it. They love combat sports. But I also think, why do I say I got lucky is because, you know, the smart mobile device is the first window of media consumption today. So you can't see the tennis ball, the soccer ball. You can't see the ping pong ball. You can't see any kind of ball on your mobile device very well. So even the highlights, if say the tennis US Open highlights, you can't see it. So your natural inclination is to scroll past them. But combat sports, you can see a flying head kick, spectacular kick, and then we tell a little 30-second story, and you're suddenly inspired, or you're suddenly excited, or you, or you laugh. So we got very lucky that the whole world starts off their day with the mobile device, and they end their day with the mobile device. But every other incumbent sport property has a big problem. It's not fun, or exciting, or even viewable on a smart mobile device, whereas combat sports is. And that is one of the big drivers. Obviously, it's very exciting, there's great stories, etc., but... We're very lucky with that, right? And to answer your question on monetization, you know, we're going to cross 100 million in revenues this year. But when I look at the next 12 months, next three years, next five years, we're going to pass profitability. So we've been investing in this massive platform for 11 plus years, broadcast live with our brand, with our roster, with our platform, our distribution deals, all that. And now we're starting to see real monetization 
again, we're very lucky. Investors understood the vision, gave us time and capital. I mean, we raised over $500 million to build this platform. It wasn't until year five or year six when investors got interested, um, after our metrics started taking off. But we've been very, very lucky to have some of the smartest money investors you know, in the world. Well, another session that I have my eye on today, particularly given my own interest in the Indian Premier League and the Indian market and the shifts that have taken place in the last 18 months or so, given the recent broadcast deal that you so eloquently covered on the Sportswear website, was from Yannick Kalaska from Fancode, an Indian digital streaming platform. I thought that was a fascinating session, particularly his positioning on the, the growth of Indian sports outside of the Premier League and really the importance of accessibility. What were your takes on it? Yeah, well, this kind of goes back to what we said in part one, which was, oh, in this case, it's India, whereas I think in part one we were talking about APAC as a whole. It's a big market, happy days, you know, it's going to land. It, if, only, if only were that simple. One of the quotes I took away was, you assess the opportunity of India, it's, it's the United States of India. That's how you have to view it. There's so much going on there in terms of the different cultures, the different dialects, the different interests. There are so many boxes you have to tick. And actually, I think the point that Yannick made was one of the big issues is accessibility, particularly with linear television, which is not an uncommon problem in any other market, but I think one of the stats that drew my interest, I forget about the last four years, but I think he said 2016, coverage of the Premier League in India, that's the English Premier League, was less than it was in 2009. And you think about the journey that sports broadcasting has been on in that, in that intermittent period, that's quite staggering. So what they're trying to do is use digital and all the bells and whistles that come with that to help improve that accessibility. And I imagine that's going to be what a lot of other people in the market are going to be doing. Yeah, to follow up on that, mm. the diversity of the languages, mm. the cultures, the interaction habits, the consumption habits mm. was so diverse that he referenced that really there isn't a one size mm. fits all. As you said, it was the United States of India. But more so than that, it's actually, it's not just about catering to those interests, it's actively building a platform that fosters engagement and feeds into those user behaviours. A lot of people will see Fancode as a streaming platform or a digital content platform. Actually, he positioned it in a totally different way. He talked of it as a sports tech company, one that is led on that sort of user feedback loop. It's about testing, it's about listening to user feedback, it's about creating a media portfolio and a content portfolio that is directly linked by data to their audience's consumption habits. A very a step change, really, from what you'd expect. It doesn't matter how big your market is. You've still got to know where they are and what they want. And it's through those intricacies that you'll be able to succeed. Well, you know I'm a big fan of the IPL. You may have mentioned um, it once or twice. Yeah, for, for listeners, George actually likes cricket. I don't know if anybody's aware of that. But yeah. uh, apologies to any listeners who may have fallen asleep at my 50th mention of this. But um, I often talk about the IPL as the big aggregator, right? The one that brings these huge Indian audiences under one roof and becomes a hugely attractive proposition for advertisers. But he was saying that Fancode almost exists for all the sports outside of the IPL. The English Premier League example that you gave where he said it sees less consumption than it did in 2009. 
I think he talked about the IPO having almost a multiple hundreds increase in terms of consumption, interest, investment, commercialization, etc. And that fan code exists for those sports that don't get the airtime because of that, because they're not these big aggregators of audiences. And actually, they have much more niche subsets. They have much more specific user habits, consumption habits. Maybe that might be uh, language commentaries that are underserved by traditional linear broadcasts. That might be gamification tools, I think, was one of the things he referenced. And a very handy reminder that, yes, 1.2 billion people and growing is a huge opportunity for sports rights to tap into that big audience and to bring advertisers to that big audience. But more than that, it represents thousands of niches and societal niches that will have sporting interests that are undiscovered and certainly underserved. So it's not just an opportunity for these big overarching properties that are multinational or cover these huge audience bases, but actually for challenger sports, there's an enormous untapped opportunity as well. Absolutely. That opportunity is there. It's just putting the right methodologies and tools in place to do it. But I think the temptation with the Indian market is just to, you know, go, yeah, cricket, it's an open goal, done, bish, bash, bosh. But, like, the market, the state, where it is, and with all the intricacies we've already discussed, there is opportunity there. And I think, just to go back to your point, the fact that Banco see themselves as a tech company points to what you have to do to land in the market, irrespective of what rights you have. Well, to save listeners from hearing me once again babble on about how exciting that market is, let's hear from Yannick himself. When you talk about the sports they love and you talk about the sports they love their way, it's essentially access and experience. The reality is that in the world of linear television, the access to most sports content in India was limited because essentially linear television by nature and by its business model Right? You had two major restrictions. The first restriction was you had, it's linear, right? So you could only put one game at one point of time. You wanted to put a second game on, you had to launch a second channel. So you were restricted. When you made the choice of that one game, you always went to the lowest common denominator, which was the mass. So there was more and more resource, more and more money being pumped into the more popular sport, which made them more popular, and less and less resource being pumped into every other sport. Like, I'll give you an example. The amount of coverage in 2016 of the English Premier League in India was less than it was in 2009. But the amount of coverage on the IPL was 20 times more than it was in 2009. So I think one of the things that we try to do, or we want to continue doing as fan code, is essentially solve the access problem by using digital and essentially unlocking the potential of digital by solving the access problem and customizing experiences to what you're saying, right? Customizing experiences to fans, whether it's language, whether it's the type of experience that they actually watch, whether it's the forms of content that they watch. Uh, I mean, obviously, bit rates and all are very basic, but whether it's the platforms they watch, whether it's how you want to watch it with people, you want to watch stats, you want to watch fantasy stats with the game, things like that. So being able to use digital and fan code in itself to be able to provide access as well as to be able to provide a great experience is something that we've actually been really focused on. Last year, we did 5,000 live games on FanCode. This year, we're doing about 20,000. Every single day, we have about 50 live games across nine or 10 different sports. And we are able to do that because we are able to use digital to essentially, because it's such a big, diverse country of 1.2 billion people, we're able to say that let's target 100,000 people, all of which live in six different areas with six different languages, with 12 different age brackets, with 
14 different viewing habits in terms of highlights, in terms of camera angles and things like that. And you're able to do that with technology. So I've always said that, you know, we are in the business of content and business sports content, but we are a sports tech company. Our job is the user, and we are constantly trying to figure out how do we use technology to essentially know more about the user and customize experiences and access to that user. I know um, you never should keep a, an editorial writer from his end of event beer, so I'm not going to keep you for much longer, Ed, but I do want to talk to you about your own onstage performance and your own onstage session. You spoke with Robbie McRobbie, CEO of Hong Kong China Rugby Union, and some of their commercial partners involved, including Cathay Pacific and Coca-Cola. So how was that, and what were your main takeaways from that session? Well, Joe was very on brand. He thrust a Coke in everybody's hand. Obviously, with my journalistic integrity, I brought a Pepsi to, um, <laughs> to uh, really you know, just provide balance. But what I actually thought was very refreshing was the Hong Kong 7 series, which is Hong Kong China rugby's meal ticket. To, I mean, if you want to put it bluntly, you know, it's, their, what their, it's a key revenue pillar for them. They've managed to position that as, I mean, all sport is entertainment, but a lot of events choose to really play up the entertainment element because it allows them to cast the net a bit wider. And Sevens, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but I think it was a fair old chunk actually go for the vibe, if you like. You know, it's an event, and I think... The non-sport entertainment. Absolutely, yeah. And that actually has given the likes of Coca-Cola and Cathay Pacific actually a lot more license to get creative with the partnership because it's a long-term partnership and we saw during covid a lot of brands reevaluate their sponsorship relationships i mean apac region specifically Qantas and rugby australia uh, yeah coca-cola and Cathay pacific they opted to stay put but they're leaning into a lot of different things to get value out of that partnership they're looking at new technological developments they're looking to new fan experiences and i know people who work in sponsorship love to say we don't just slap a logo on something but I think it's actually one of those instances where they really aren't just slapping a logo on something they actually really are getting quite creative because they've got an environment where they can do that which is interesting to see well as a reminder with all of our on-stage sessions from this event you can access them via the Sports Pro Plus platform and via the Sports Pro website as part of our subscription offering so please do go to the website there is a month free trial so you can tuck into all of the sessions Ed and I have discussed and more. Now, before I leave you for the evening, what are you most looking forward to for tomorrow? Well, we've got, I guess, the, the headliner, if you like, is Billy Hogan from Liverpool. We're not here to talk about stuff on the pitch, but Liverpool, they are a team in transition. They've gutted their midfield. They're getting a new one in. So, a few off-field talking points that comes with that. Exactly. And I think Billy was in an interesting position where he started slap-bang in the middle of the pandemic. There are a couple of as things as we came out of the pandemic, you know, certain breakaway competitions. I don't know if we'll be able to touch on them or not, but I think it more will be interesting to hear sort of the wider theme of what it's like working in that environment for one of the biggest, you know, sports brands in the world. And so that's, I'm really looking forward to just seeing how someone with that, that profile and that pressure really deals with it. And also any club's sort of journey, if you like, is cyclical like a couple of years ago Liverpool they were back-to-back European finalists they won one of those games and they were going neck and neck with City now it's a new journey and it'll be interesting to see how that's going to be reflected off the pitch yeah I'm very much looking forward to it. that interview will actually be broadcast as a sports pro podcast special 
So that's something to look forward to in the coming weeks. Ed, thanks for your time. The table tennis table is calling us both. So if you have a game? Uh, I might, I might, um, might ask if they've got a Horlicks behind the bar. That might just help settle the nerves. I don't know if that, they brought that. That's made its way to Singapore, but um, we'll see. But yeah, that might help relax me before um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll turn uh, the arm. I'll take, I'll take advantage and try and catch you most time. Until <laughs> tomorrow, Ed. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, George. Ed, I've collared you for one final time as we stroll the corridors of Marina Bay Sands, Singapore. The curtain has just fallen on Sports Pro APAC 2023. The cast have given their curtain call and we are striding with intent towards the networking area. And listeners sat at home will hear the hubbub of conversation shortly. Before we go in, Ed, what's been your thoughts on the events this year? Yes, well, we started today with, well, we used to kicked off the day with uh, Liverpool Chief Executive Billy Hogan. It was a session we'd sort of eyeballed from the outset, really. The excitement was so powerful that one of the delegates turned up in a Liverpool shirt, so it gives you an idea of the expectation. I still dream to this day of someone coming in like a Sports Pro podcast shirt or a branded shirt with our names on it, but uh, that's the heady heights that we look forward to yeah, maybe uh, with next, podcast maybe next, fame. Yeah, maybe next year at APAC. <laughs> No, but uh, it was great to catch up with Billy. Obviously, today being the, the final day of Liverpool's preseason tour of Singapore, Liverpool have a pretty major footprint in the region. They've been partnering with Standard Chartered, for instance, whose um, regional offices or, or, or head offices actually can be seen just across the bay here in Singapore. Talking about how that partnership's been activated and the benefits of a longer-term partnership that can contribute from a community point of view, but also can genuinely have a tangible impact regionally that it's not just that brand exposure it can be about partnering understanding local audiences understanding local nuances and how to effectively engage fans in the region but uh not a blow my own trumpet ed what were your what was your takeaways from the session well i collared billy before he went on stage just to have a chat and it does make you realize that you know for the casual fan once the curtain comes down on the season that's kind of it really there's a little bit you know a bit of time and then you're straight into pre-season you've got to remember Pre-season's kind of a bit of an afterthought in football, chance to maybe see a new signing, turnout, fitness, but actually more and more you're seeing that it actually plays a huge part in the brand building exercise for stuff off the pitch. So Singapore, yes, it's about getting the miles on the clock for the players, but also, as Billy said, it's an opportunity to tap more fans in the market, which is why they brought a slew of Liverpool legends with them, for example, and they've got all these activations plans. We did see on the streets a few days ago. Yes, we did. If you're, if you're a, and, and you're a huge Martin Skirtle fan, so I think it was a highlight of your trip. <laughs> well, the other thing that, that Billy mentioned that I hadn't fully appreciated was that they, they sit almost transcontinental as a club. They obviously have their ownership based in Boston with Fenway Sports Group, and Billy himself talked about starting his career in Fenway Sports Management, an agency that looks, um, or that certainly is involved in the commercial interests of all of the Fenway Sports Groups. Obviously themselves have a very strong community tie in Liverpool, very strong local roots in the city. And then as we've talked about, the regional partners and Standard Chartered and a significant footprint in APAC. So it really is a global club. And it was interesting to hear him talk about the importance of leveraging learnings from different parts of the world. I mean, I think he mentioned in particular the difference in merchandising rights between the US that's centralised and is therefore a revenue distribution model. Then you look in the UK, obviously yourself with the, the finances of football series that you've been running 
will know better than I that, that shirt sponsorships aren't just revenue for the clubs, that it's um, split to, to various degrees with the kit suppliers themselves. But then you come somewhere like Singapore, where he talks about having lots of different regional merchandising partners and distribution partners throughout the different countries, particularly within Southeast Asia, where there is a more direct revenue taking for the club. So uh, what did you think on that? It's something you actually kind of forget for an owner like FSG and, the, and all the other American club owners in the Premier League and ones that have interests in teams in the major leagues about owning the commercial rights. You sort of forget about that. As you said, if you walk into a into a shop and buy a Philadelphia Eagles hat, that goes to the NFL. If you go into a shop and buy a Liverpool hat, it goes to the club. That's a very unique thing for someone that's coming in from America. So it's another reason why American investors are coming to the Premier League among a slew of other things. But it does put further emphasis on the importance of engaging that worldwide fan base and leveraging that global appeal because it means if you get it right, you're going to do all right. You talked about the slew of investors mm. um, into the Premier League from the US. We did quiz Billy briefly um, towards the end of the session on the economic landscape of the Premier League in particular rising valuations FSG themselves are seeing a, a multiple times increase on their own valuation of the club should we hear from the horse's mouth what you had to say on that sounds good to me In my opinion, again, I'm biased, but I think it's been proven that the value of live rights, the value of sports content, probably the last bit of content that is truly consumed live. Um, and I think that's a difference maker for certainly what's going on in the media market. We're going through clearly a, a lot of disruption, obviously streamers coming in now to sort of traditional media companies. So you know, very interesting to see where that's going. But I think what you've seen over the course of the last decade and beyond is that there's been an appreciation in terms of value with sports properties. And I think that comes back to a lot of what makes sports so exciting is the passion, the energy, the excitement, the unknown of what's coming on a you know, match by match or season by season basis. And so I think that's a lot of what continues to drive the valuations. I think in the Premier League, it's probably a little bit different. It's the most competitive, biggest football league in the world. And these are some of the biggest clubs in the world. And so I think when you look at the opportunity from a truly global perspective, from a media, commercial, community perspective, it puts those clubs into very rarefied air in terms of what that valuation looks like. So that hopefully checks the valuation box. I think in terms of overall kind of, you know, the economics of football, uh, the challenges within the economics of football, look, you know, from our perspective, we've always come from the standpoint that the club has to be run sustainably. Um, my job is to lead a group of people and work with a group of people that are incredibly passionate, care deeply about what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, have nothing but the best for the club in their mindset. And what we're trying to do is generate as much revenue as we possibly can. Sometimes that's difficult to say, but that's the truth. And we're trying to supply that to Jurgen and the team to do what they need to do on the pitch. And that sort of virtuous circle is how we operate. And I think there are new financial regulations coming in over just next season, the 24-25 season from UEFA kind of FFP 2.0, if you will. And, you know, I think that's something that we certainly believe in, in terms of financial regulation. And I think the idea that you would, you know, potentially mortgage the future of a club for short-term gain is a really dangerous one. We've seen it in the UK with teams, you know, frankly, going into administration. And so I think the idea that clubs should be run sustainably uh, and within their means is an important one. Now, Ed, 
final session that I wanted to pick your brains on before we do our now famous Martin Brundle-esque grid walk through the networking space where we collar unsuspecting delegates and ask them for their takeaways. Um, I wanted to pick your brains on the esports panel that we held just before lunch today. You can't really run a conference in the Asia-Pacific without talking about esports, of course. Southeast Asia really is the home of esports and is its growth engine. But what were your thoughts on that session? Esports is in a very interesting period because, you know, to, to save everyone time, the narrative around esports was loads of exposure during the pandemic because there was nothing else on, followed by bags of investment, mainstream appeal. It hasn't really, again, I'm simplifying this, but it hasn't really kicked on in a sense that it's harsh business realities, wider economic challenges that many industries are seeing has been hit particularly hard by them because at, at its root, esports for a lot of sports teams, it's a marketing exercise. So if you're a club like Paris Saint-Germain who spoke during the session, you can use esports to help attract a younger fan base, bring them into the funnel, bring them into the club. For a club like PSG, if they make a loss on that, then it's fine because they're using it predominantly as a marketing exercise and that goes for the same with the game developers for them esports is predominantly a marketing exercise because it promotes the title where the problem is if you are just an esports team or an organization making money because the bulk of your revenue comes from sponsorship so there's a huge amount of pressure on that so this kind of esports winter if we want to give it a name means that things are getting interesting the industry is kind of having to recalibrate which is kind of what we're seeing with the wider tech sector with all the job losses so it's kind of in a period of transition so i think you know there are things to be hopeful about the audience is young the audience is engaged but ultimately for it to be sustainable and more i guess widespread it it needs to start making money so ed i know you pulled out a particularly interesting clip from the session what was that i should say i made it sound like it's all doom and gloom in esports it's not it's just facing challenges like many other sectors but there is huge momentum behind it it's got a huge following a lot of investment a lot of interest and as a result that's why people are talking up the potential of it being in the olympics and it may not be down the road but i think a lot has to change for it has to happen so keep watch this space but um as you'll hear from the people on the panel it's certainly possible well let's hear from them now yeah i think uh, as a singaporean it's great that we know we continue to host these major events. Um, I would say, I guess, with the Olympic Games, just my personal take, it's a process of them, education probably internally, to try and get comfortable with the idea that uh, some of these events won't be going away anytime soon. But in this example, I think what they chose were the sports that were closest to a simulation of, of traditional sports, something that was more relatable to them. But in the grand scheme of esports, I think they don't have that viewership and that strong following, primarily because the events that were chosen were not the mainstream esports events. So if you look at the Southeast Asian Games from 2019 and 2021, and the upcoming ASEAN Games, you know they've all had proper esports events, which are more mainstream, and the adoption, the following is there, so it's got more traction. I think they understand that uh, by giving these titles, the same recognition as traditional sports at these major regional events. There is recognition that esports is a a discipline or a profession that is up there with their peers. So I think the Olympic Games will slowly come around to adopting this. I think the, the goal is to try and cater to the needs and the interests of people out there. And if you want the engagement from true 
fans of the esports world, I think the Olympic Games will hopefully come back with a, a better choice of, of titles. And JD, I know this is your first time in Singapore, um, so you, you weren't able to attend uh, the Olympic Esports Week here. But given that it's obviously a very hot topic in the U.S. where you're based, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think one or two things to really address about you know the Olympics and e what esports is in trying to see how we can make that work within the space is esports you're competing against traditional sports, right? Where there's this huge legacy of years and years and years of it being an established thing. So when we look at what esports is, only until recently, you know, we're hitting the 10 year anniversary of League of Legends, right? We're, we're looking at all these different esports that have the eyes, but the legacy just isn't there yet. So I think that validity as legacy comes and, you know, the mainstay titles and the really premier titles within esports really solidify themselves in the minds of people involved in the Olympics and uh, these kind of bigger organizations um, at a global scale. That's one of the biggest things. Another thing is, you know, when we're, and this is, you know, transcends, you know, esports and gaming a little bit is just um, the public perception of what violence looks like when it comes to video games and how that relates. And I think that that's, you know, one of the hot topics that is making esports within the Olympics a little bit difficult. So you end up kind of having titles that don't want to be violent necessarily. So as time goes on and people's perceptions maybe change about esports in certain games, the possibility of that kind of landing within the Olympics is more and more viable. And Fernando, to close us out. I think this was like a tremendous progress to actually have, you know, the Olympic rings associated with esports. There was like a tremendous leap into like getting esports full on recognized as like the highest governing body like in traditional sports. Obviously, there's like a long way to go. I think the sports that were chosen, as, as you guys said, they're not necessarily the core sports titles. They're not League of Legends, they're not Dota 2, they're not CSGO. They're something that relates with both audiences. And it's going to go like a long way in terms of education, in terms of really getting and understanding how these things, they can coexist and how one doesn't like annul uh, the next. So all in all, I think, again, it was a massive milestone. Maybe like in a few years, I'm going to be talking about this one sports league, um, Olympic week as the no, one of like the biggest marks in the history of esports. But again, there's still a lot of things that need to be done. Well, Ed, we're striding through the corridor now, trying to find um, some potential delegates that we can collar. I think I can see one here. She is amid conversations. We'll butt in with very little grace. But I'm here with uh, Janison from Spo TV. She was speaking in our final session of the day and ended with a pretty exciting announcement that the Saudi Pro League will be on Spo TV, hot off the press. But Jana, how's your experience been over the last few days at Sports Pro Pack? Yeah, I mean, this is my second time at Sports Pro being last year in the first. I wasn't speaking, but my colleague was. And this is the second time. And, you know, since the first one, we look forward to coming back to the second one. And I think it's very well organized. And um, the feedback we gave last year was hoping to see some brands be in this conference as well. So uh, you had the session with the brands. So I think that was very beneficial because on top of just sporting rights people and tech people you know ultimately we also want to engage the brands so I think it's good to add that program into this uh, event so it's nice and then it's still as usual very well organized and everyone's friendly and nice and it's been good networking for everyone as well yeah well very kind of you to say 
One of the things that we've been focusing on for this year is looking at some of the regional areas across Southeast Asia and the APAC region more specifically. You yourself gave that expert deep dive into the South Korean market, but what have been some of your takeaways on the nuances of the APAC region? Um, well, it's still back to the point of it's APEC, but it is very diverse. The tastes and appetites are different. So understanding the different platforms that, you know, actually spoke to this, especially say like Astro talking about grassroots and then also what kind of content, you know, works and also I think that it's um, important for everyone to have insights, not just for APEC um, business or APEC industry. People from, you know, the um, global sports industry could also have an insight if they want to enter into this market or have some key takeaways. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. We've kept you away from a well-deserved refreshment, so uh, we'll let you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having us, and look forward to having you guys here again next year. Great. Thank you, Chana. Ed, I can see another long-term friend of Sports Pro and member of the New Era Steering Group, Melissa Sobrati. Melissa, how have you found the last two days? It's been good. I think there's been some interesting conversations. I thought Ewan from Astro was fantastic sharing his whole strategy in terms of the new Astro and what they're doing in the market. I also think it was quite interesting listening to the e-gaming panel and the parallels or non-parallels with sport. (laughs) And I mean, it's very interesting to see what PSG have done. And quite interesting that I didn't spy any French people on their team. I think they were all from Asia. I might have got that wrong. So that spoke a lot. It's been a quite meaningful couple of days catching up with people because half the time WTT we're on the road at events. So it's been good having a lot more time to network as well as go to the panels. Fantastic. Good to hear. Well, WTT have also had an additional presence here. Um, Over your left shoulder I can see the table tennis table that's been set up where we've had competitions over the past couple of days. How important is it to be able to sort of activate locally at events like this and have you seen some great interest at the table over the last two days? I think what's really great about table tennis as a sport is that there's very little barrier to entry. Unlike other sports where you might have to have a bit of skill etc. To just pick up the racket and have a go there is less fear. And actually, it's been really nice seeing people just pick it up and have a go, etc. But definitely from a grassroots perspective and as we go out to market, it's one of the, I think it's the third most participated sport in the world. And as a result of that, you know, we want to shine a light on that and change the perception that it is an Asian-dominated sport. If you look at the men's top 10 in the world rankings, it's a lot more diverse than people think. So we just need to have everybody come to a WTT event, have the full event experience. It's not just the action on the table. And hopefully they will walk away feeling really happy with an experience that money can't buy. Well, two delegates have won tickets to the Singapore Smash for next March. They'll be able to experience it on the ground. Sadly, I've played a couple of games over the last two days, lost both, so I'm claiming there's something wrong with the table. It, there's clearly lots of skill involved. Were you being super generous and you let the other person no, win? he wasn't. <laughs> that is the party line we'll go with, Melissa, and that is why you're a friend of the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Right, Ed, um, I can see people shying away from well, us I, as we try and I should say a public service announcement, if, so- if you have a social event and you want people to leave, just hire us with some microphones, <laughs> and honestly, people will absolutely leg it. You don't even need to hire us. We'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll come for free. 
let's see if we can get one final, uh, one final person to partake in the podcast. Micah um, from Bay in Sports. How have you found the last couple of days, Mike? And have you enjoyed the conference? Yeah, it's been very interesting. Uh, a lot of insights, uh, a lot of uh, discussion about what's going to happen in the future. A lot of tech talk, AI in particular, is very interesting. And obviously the transition to digital is obviously top of everyone's mind. AI seemed to have been a discussion point that came up in a few different panels, particularly the, the content creation session looked very heavily at the role that generative AI plays. As a broadcaster, as content creator yourself, as part of your organization, how important is AI for your future? Well, I think it's going to be important from a business perspective, back end first, in terms of efficiency. Um, how it's going to play out in terms of... Um, what we do in terms of consumer facing. I think fan engagement is probably going to be the biggest opportunity for us. But really, we're, we're really excited to see what happens I mean, in terms of the broadcast. I think it'll lean into XR as well. So I think there are some exciting times ahead. One quote that stuck in my mind over the last couple of days was the end of the opening session on diving deep on the APAC region. And the question asked really is, is APAC perennially the land of opportunity? Do you need to be playing the long game or are there opportunities right now that sports properties can take for future growth? So the last question we'll leave you is, is what was your take on that? I think it's always had that potential, mainly because of its size and size of population. I think now with technology really coming to the forefront, you're going to see a lot of leapfrogging with that technology. So the, the lack of infrastructure becomes less of an issue. Technology is rolling out to sort of everyone, so it's kind of a leveler. So I think, yes, there will still be significant growth in this region. I hesitate to say that, yes, it, you know, this is going to be the region because I've been saying that for the last 20 years. But I really do believe that the technology that we have today and the speed at which that technology is being rolled out, the speed at which that technology is adapting to broadcast and to sports broadcast, I think that's going to be a game changer. So we'll wait and see. So I've got one more question, Mike. Do you think George was a good host? <laughs> no comment no, that's fine. the best the best <laughs> you're too kind that sounds like a very insincere but a good note to end on Mike thank you very much for your time Ed um, I, I think you squeezing a compliment out of our delegates is probably a fair place to end uh, on the floor at Sports for APAC it's been a pleasure joining you over the last couple of days um, I wish you a safe trip back to London to all our listeners thank you very much for tuning in mm-hmm.